right. want to protect your kid from any harm uh, or the other side of it, hey, you want to teach your kids that consequences, you know, there are consequences to your actions. Welcome to Ingenious Perspectives. On this podcast, we aim to discuss issues that have loomed over the African-American experience for generations. It's our goal to present these topics, not just from our point of view, but from various research perspectives. We invite you to come shift your paradigms with us today. Today, we're continuing Lawrence's uh, guide through our journey um, as we discuss institutions and their role in our fight for equality. Um, thus far, we've discussed the family institution and its importance and how creating that accountability and responsibility at home can lead to greater accountability of, of people within society as we, we push to try to build uh, stronger people, um, people that are able to, to push um, and endure the things that, that have to happen in order for us to achieve this equality. Today, we're transitioning from family to education. So now that we've talked about how to build more resilient people, we're going to talk about how to educate those people. So that way they can help, again, continue to build society. Lawrence? Oh, yeah. So like education is huge. Every every scholar, every political thinker, every uh, genius in any way, shape or form has always identified education as the linchpin of progress. That is the, the place that most change is made. When you're talking about societal change, individual change, it's where we all uh, kind of, you know, spread out and start going on our own paths coming out of an education uh, setting, you know, and you you see for, you know, for the black community that that's, yeah, that's just as, you know, just as true as anywhere, anywhere else. And the institution of education, especially, you know, specifically in America is, you know, kind of uh, is under stress right now. Um, through a lot of different things, you know, we're, we're sitting there in the middle of a pandemic with COVID-19 and, uh, you know, so education right now for most places is, you know, shifted to these remote things that uh, aren't really getting the same outcomes as, you know, in-person classes. Uh, so a lot, a lot of people are ready for this thing to be over so that you can get the kids back in the class, uh, obviously safely. Um, but yeah, everybody agrees. I mean, you go back to uh, WEBD, W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, going back to Martin Luther King, uh, all the leaders, uh, Marcus Garvey, all of them are uh, advocated for a strong educational foundation inside our community. And that's what our leaders, uh, intellectual leaders in the black community have been pushing for. So um, so let's let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges, right, because obviously if we're looking to strengthen the educational institution there's a reason that hasn't occurred to this point right so what are some of those some of the challenges that you're seeing facing that institution right now yeah so like overall and not just unique to the black community uh education in america is uh hit a kind of a, a crisis point of being um overfunded underfunded and uh Tension being misguided in a lot of different ways. Okay. Uh, so, and if you look at uh, the stats to show, you know how much we're we're spending per student in a lot of jurisdictions, and you see you're seeing outlandish numbers per year. You know, eighteen thousand dollars in some uh, some places. Uh, 
uh, for that each per capita or per student that they're paying to get this, get a year's worth of, of primary education. So you're talking about high schools. Okay. Um, and then you're seeing uh, in a lot of places huge disparities between schools. Uh, so you see a school in the suburbs uh, having getting multiple thousands of dollars more per student to get them through, the, through that education. So you're, you're seeing overfunding in the sense that there's a lot of schools out there getting way more money than they uh, than comparably other schools. And you're seeing underfunding because you got these schools that that are overcrowded. Uh, their school, uh, teachers aren't qualified enough, aren't empowered enough with the support of administration to you know get students through school with you know a quality education. Uh, and then at the kind of national level, there's a lot of attention on things that don't really matter for students. Hmm. You know, we, we've instituted a lot of standardized tests that don't necessarily translate to better educated youth um, whenever we kind of incorporate these things into, you know, our normal day to day in our, our educational pipeline, if you will. All right. So with um, with that list of challenges, right, starting with funding, um, I'm sure that that has some type of I don't know. I feel like that would have a another impact. Like that challenge itself would maybe create further challenges. I guess in my head, I'm just saying, all right, you've got this school with better funding, um, with teachers who are probably a little bit more attentive because they're putting more funding into that school, so they're paying a little bit more attention to um, how they're disciplining these kids versus maybe teachers who are in a less funded um, educational environment. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at uh, schools that have a lot of uh, money at their disposal, they have a lot of you know uh, programs that are you know extracurricular in nature, right? So these these teachers uh, get to come to class and they get to focus on educating uh, students, and they get to focus on you know uh, fostering those kids you know little identities and 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 sculpting them into the you know adults that they will be you know one day, and the schools that are on the other end of that spectrum, like you said, they're worried about discipline. They're worried about combating the uh, the issues that students are facing at home due to poverty. Because they're most likely, if you're not getting a lot of funding, it's because you're you know you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't have a lot of money. All right, and so those teachers most likely are getting paid a little bit less, and then they are so they're thinking about their own financial issues on the margin, right, a little bit more than probably those other teachers are, and so like all that stuff together just has a pressure that makes uh, negative or less than optimal outcomes more likely in those bad settings. And and people see that. So whenever you go to buy a house, because, you know, most schools are funded from property taxes. When you go to go to buy a house, you look for where you want to have a good school because, you, you know, if you got kids, you, you know, you got kids in your household, you want to put those kids in a good school. So you don't buy houses in the bad school neighborhoods. And so that further takes away money from those those basketball. And it ends up being a spiral okay. uh, that we end up uh, kind of coming up against all the time. I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. Um, I think another uh, problem that, that we face with discipline is labeling of students. Uh, what comes to mind immediately is confirmation bias, right? So if I identify one person as a hard worker and one person is lazy, when I see them both sitting down doing nothing, in my head, I'm seeing that the hard worker probably just got done doing something. They're taking a break because they're tired and they worked, you know, they worked themselves. 
to the bone and that lazy person while they're doing the exact same thing both sitting down both relaxing in my head that lazy person again is just being lazy again they're just not caring and not giving 100 percent. so i feel like confirmation bias and those labels probably also play another role in um the challenge of discipline within our schools yeah so the i mean so kind of talking about uh something that's unique to the black community is the the role that implicit bias is playing in our disciplinary system. Um, so I'm reading a book and recommendation for everybody out there is a book called Despite the Best Intentions uh, by Amanda Lewis and John Diamond. Um, and they do a deep dive into, uh, they take a, a particular school that has all the wickets that should um, result in the elimination of a racial gap in, in education outcomes, right? That, that you see nationally, you see that uh, black and uh, brown students are under underperforming their white counterparts when you control for all stats, essentially okay. uh, income, health, all those other things, you know, with uh, black and brown students still not performing at the same level uh, as their white counterparts. And <clears throat> what they find uh, one of the things they find is that implicit bias is it plays a huge role in those negative outcomes, those differential outcomes. And they did a you know they did a bunch of questionnaires and they did a bunch of uh, kind of uh, analysis of the data associated with detentions and in-school suspensions, expulsions, that type of thing. And they're, they're finding that uh, teachers are not immune to implicit bias. And it's for those that uh, kind of may not know the scope of implicit bias. Uh, or how we measure it, um, one of the tests they do is they analyze this thing called priming. And so uh, they'll take a test subject, so a person, and they'll prime them with either imagery or uh, word, word language to uh, something associated with blackness, being being black, blackness, African-American, that type of thing. Um, and it's usually in, in a non-overt way. So for example, they have you look at a screen, they'll flash on the screen, a black person, but do, if they flash it very quickly, so quickly that your conscious mind does not perceive it, uh, but your unconscious mind saw the image, right? So you hadn't had time to think about a thing. And then right following that, they ask you a, a questionnaire. So they say, hey, if you see a person doing these things, a, and they don't specify race of the person, see a person doing these things, what do you think about that? And uh, so that's like one of the tests. And so what they saw was, when a person was primed with a, with a black or brown, and more specifically with uh, uh, the 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 outcomes were were more um, were stronger for black for black primed um, subjects, they were more likely to negatively uh, you know assess the situation. So if they say, hey, this uh, this person is doing these things, is this suspicious or not? Um, and if they are black, they're primed with a black person, then they would more likely say, yes, this is suspicious behavior. This is more likely going to be criminal behavior than if they were primed with a white person. That was um, that show. Um, what would you do or something like yes. that? They had a similar situation. There was a, a bike that was locked up to a bike rack or maybe locked up to a light pole or something like that. And they had a white female saying that she was trying to get the bike. And they asked her, was the bike hers? And she said, no, it wasn't hers. And people were still trying to help her get this bike unlocked from this tree or, or whatever it was locked to. They were trying to help her get the bike off so she could take the bike. And 
even when asked explicitly, was it hers, which I don't think came up that much, she said no. When they did the same experiment with a black male, that question came up almost every time with this locked bike. Hey, is that yours? And when he said no, the cops were eventually called on him um, because he was trying to get this locked bike. And then just to make sure it wasn't a male-female thing, they did the same thing with a white male. Now, he still didn't get as much help as the white female. But again, when he said the bike wasn't his, they still helped him retrieve this bike. Exactly. So in in, in, in the school setting, you'll see that in things like uh, in measured it or they just measured it in in conversation so they asked the kids of the school like a sampling of children hmm. they asked them hey uh you know what do you see in your school when it comes to race and they, they try not to lead the kids because that's something you don't want to do in a in a kind of question setting you want to put things in their in their brain you know uh to like uh you know lead the conversation but ultimately what something that these kids came up with was that um you know, things like getting a hall pass, there was a lot more scrutiny on hmm. the black children for when they wanted to get a hall pass. Why do you need it? Are you sure you need this? Hey, our policy is no hall passes. Whereas with the white, white students are more likely to get the hall pass. And if they were in the halls, they had in this particular school, they had security guards that can walk the halls. Uh, when they're in the halls, it, the black students were more likely to be interrogated. Hey, where's your hall pass? What are you doing in the hallway? Whereas the white students were, you know, well, as the the white students were less likely to be interrogated uh, and questioned. Um, things like dress code enforcement. Okay. Uh, I mean, and I, and I I do remember vividly seeing this whenever uh, I was in, in in high school myself. You know, we had a, a strict dress code policy: no midriffs, no no stomach showing. Um, the 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 black students, the black girls, would, would always get. Uh, you know, in trouble for that. They'd always get sent to the office, into the nurse's office or whatnot. Um, whereas the, the white students would not, you know, they, as a kind of a general rule, the, there was like a, a threshold that was much higher for the white students that had to cross over in order to receive punitive, mm-hmm. you know, measures by the, uh, by teachers and administrators that that threshold was, was much lower for the black students. And, uh, that's the, all the data really just shows that at every level um, from, you know, chastising children for being too loud all the way to expulsion, you just see the punitive measures more likely to be employed um, for black students. So um, keeping these challenges in mind, right, we've talked about discipline challenges, funding challenges, right, and part of disciplinary challenges is this labeling. How do you think how are you seeing or your research showing that that is creating larger challenges in outcomes for black and brown students? Right. So if you you go to school, you're in class, you're trying to learn and your attention is on uh, getting, you know, defending yourself because you're doing something that you didn't think was wrong and a teacher calls you out or you see that happen more to you know, the black people in school that you see having to the white people, if you're thinking about all that stuff, that's a stressor and it, it is distracting uh, in school. Uh, so that is a, a huge, that's a force. One of the forces that make those outcomes kind of grow out. Uh, when you're in an environment that treats you as though you are not as welcome as others, there's um, a lot of data shows and it's not just racial, you know, gender, nationality, if you're in that environment, your performance, it takes a hit. 
it's harder to absorb information if you're thinking about other things. And so you're thinking about the, and it, it's not even conscious, and you're just aware of that differential treatment. It's a stressor. Okay. And so it's, and, and you may not feel th- um, stressed for it to have an effect. And that's kind of the negative effects you see. And that's just one area we talk, talk about discipline. Um, but when it comes to, you know, students seeking help, you know, whenever they address the teacher, a lot of times there is a difference in a teacher is more likely to misconstrue a question as a sarcastic response than an actual question for black and brown students. Um, and this is not to say that teachers are are bad in right. this way. This is all the vast majority of this, like 99.9 percent of this stems from implicit bias. This is not uh, the teacher saying, I don't like those black and brown students, so I'm going to give them a hard time. This is society conditions us, and these are black and brown teachers too, uh, conditions us all Americans to view black behaviors as less innocent. innocent. And even, and that applies to children as well. Um, and so that that is an exceptional, uh, I guess, challenge we have to overcome. And then one of the ways that we try to overcome that um, in recent years was, and I, I think folks that are in our generation will notice is uh is zero tolerance policies when the school district or the school administrators have uh a lot of leeway in how they execute rules they end up you know nine times out of not nine times out of ten but very frequently you know applying more harsher treatment to the black and brown students and they found themselves on the wrong side of litigation because of that um and so in order to save money and to do an ethical thing they decided to make zero tolerance rules Okay. But the the kind of book, and again, I, I welcome everybody to read this book because it's super eye opening. And if you have children in school, it really uh, gives you a little roadmap to the challenges that you know your child may face here in twenty twenty in school. Um, but it just gives you, like, it just shows you that you know parent involvement is you know hundred percent necessary. That was, that was one of the statistical things they saw. So they try to break out the causes. They go, hey, these kids are getting in trouble more. Why? You know, and they ask the question, well, maybe it's cultural. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, disprove that with a bunch of statistics. And they go, well, uh, so that's the kids. The kids aren't doing more troublesome things. They're getting in trouble more. So, okay, why is that? Well, they figure out, okay, well, teachers are taking things to a punitive na- uh, level more often. Okay. And then... They break that out. Well, why? And they they, they tease out all the the causes, and they end up finding out that um that ultimately one of the th- pressures was that uh black black and brown parents statistically were less likely to uh to advocate for their children who were who are identified breaking the rules. So little Johnny breaks the rules. And parent, if parent is white, they're more likely to go, hey, I know my kid broke the rule, but he shouldn't get suspended. Right. Whereas uh, black and brown parents would say, hey, my, I know my kid broke the rule. He, he should get suspended because okay. rules have consequences. Um, and I don't know. I'm not going to make a value judgment on which one's right because I can understand both of those rationales. Right. You want to protect your kid from any harm uh, or the other side of it. Hey, you want to teach your kids that consequences, you know, there are consequences to your actions. Um, but. Administrators, administrators have internalized 
that difference in outcomes. And so when it, when the white kid on the margin does something wrong, does something bad, uh, they think in their head, hmm, I could take this down the rabbit hole and go to in-school suspension or go to expulsion, but I don't want to hear about it at the PTA meeting. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to, you know, take this all the way down there. And I understand, you know, being, a, being in a professional environment, you definitely understand going down the easier path right. sometimes. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that those kind of forces are at play all the time. What do you, when you, when you talk about um, parent advocacy and parental environment <laughs> involvement, the first thing that my mind goes back to is our um, discussion on institutions and then discussions on family and some of the challenges that are facing families. Like when you're seeing a parent who has to find a way to split their time to be able to pay attention to that child and provide for those needs, um, they, they don't really have the time to be involved to the level that someone who is maybe more financially stable or financially secure, right, is able to go and, and be involved and participate and show face in front of these teachers on a regular basis. Yeah, so that showing face is, is huge uh, when it comes to how your, the teachers and school administrators choose to interact with your child. So if you are working a uh, hourly job that you are you know, low skilled, you're less likely to be able to go to your supervisor, go to your boss and say, hey, I need a couple hours in the middle of the day, go do this thing because you're replaceable right. a lot of times. So if you're low skilled, so black and brown families, unfortunately, are more likely to have unskilled labor, you know, labor like jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so that interaction is harder to do. Kid comes home and, you know, it's going to go through the list here. Kid comes home with algebra homework and, you know, you have parents that haven't, uh, you know, haven't had that strong educational background themselves. It's hard for them to help kids with their homework. Right. So the kids kind of doing their homework by themselves. Whereas if you have, you know, high academic achievement in the household, they can most likely help the child. Right. Uh, so you get end up with those kind of disparities and outcomes because on the margin, like, uh, for black and brown families are are statistically more likely to have less academic achievement in the family. You know, it seems to you know cycle right back around to education, right? They had that parent had a a diminished outcome because of their label or discipline or lack of funding, yeah. which led them into the position that they are as adults, which prevents them from being able to ensure that their children don't have those um less helpful outcomes in their lives. And so you, you have that just continuing cycle for who knows how long. Yeah. And, and that's why this moment right here is so critical that we're in because, you know, uh, we got this pandemic going on and people are home uh, and they're home. They're supposed to be homeschooling their kids. A lot of them. Um, yes, they got the, uh, you know, the remote educating. A lot of folks are having, you know, educating online and those things like that. But that requires the, the family to be heavily involved. And if you have, you know, family members, you know, mother, father, uh, who, you know, they they only went so far in their education. You know, the level of help they can provide usually is is lower. Like, there's a lot of families that that I, you know, I've I've seen. They they take the time to learn the stuff so they can help their kids. Right. Um, but a lot of people don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes, you know, you, you get older, it's harder to learn things. Right. You know, so like that's that's a, a challenge and it's understandable. Um, but it just it ends up, you know, there's outcomes because of that. You, you end up hurting the kids. 
um, because of that. I know in our last discussion when we talked about family, you mentioned that um, both of your parents had grad level degrees, right? Yes. How do you feel like, or do you feel like that played a role? Because right? we're talking about personal involvement and their ability to kind of understand what you're bringing home when you need help. Do you feel like that um, having parents who, right, who were able to, to, to assist or be there, did it seem like it had an impact on your outcomes, your educational outcomes? Oh, yeah, it was huge. Uh, I had my, like, my mom was, like, the last two years of high school, I would regularly bump into my mom at the school. She's just there. <laughs> Nothing to do with me, but just there at the school, involving herself with the educational process. She was a fixture. Uh, like her and she, she at the time, she was, uh, had my little brother in tow all the time because, you know, he was an infant at the time. Uh, and they involved us. So she would talk to my teachers. Uh, she would, you know, ask, check up on me. So like her, the teachers knowing that, you know, I had somebody at home who cared about my education they would tell me stuff like that when I was in class. Let's say I was, uh, you know, uh, I'd fall asleep in math class. I remember the math teacher say, hey, you, you, you know, you get up, your mom's, uh, ex, you know, your mom might hear about it or something like that. You know, <laughs> give me a hard time. Uh, they didn't do that with the other kids because the other kids' parents weren't there. Um, so I'm not saying everybody's parent needs to be roaming around the halls of school every day, but just having that involvement communicates to the teachers that there's value in education in this household. So they're going to be backed up when they tell you to do something and you don't do it. They know they're going to have backup. Right. So they, they're more likely to do that than if they think that 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 stuff is going to fall on deaf ears. Yeah. I guess it, uh, if you think about it as a as a continuum, as a disciplinary continuum where you have. All right. I gave you a verbal warning, a severe warning or detention or suspension. It, it kind of adds a few steps in there. Right. When you know I'm going to call your parent. Or I'm going to send this email to your parent, or I'm just going to step out in the hallway and go talk to your parent. It, it adds steps before you have to get to some type of um, written something that's on your in your record, right? Some yeah, type of absolutely. that type of discipline. Um, yeah. I know similar, definitely similar situation for me. My dad literally sat through some of my classes with me when I was thinking that I was big and bad and didn't have to do the stuff that I needed to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I could um I could I could skip out on school. Matter of fact, I think it was my middle school yearbook. Um somebody wrote in there, stop making your dad have to come to class. Like one of my <laughs> friends wrote that in my yearbook, you know, stop making your dad have to come to class. <laughs> so yeah, it definitely I feel like it helped quite a bit. It got to um and even even outside of the showing up in the school every day, just the opportunities that school presents at parent-teacher conferences, my parents never missed them. Like they, One of them was there. Somebody had to work. Somebody was going to be. They never missed an opportunity yeah. to sit down and run through. It was one of the things that helped me when I was struggling in biology in ninth grade, the fact that my parents had sat down and talked to my biology teacher. I'm like, look, we're not sure that she's... <laughs> wound too tight but she's a hundred percent there so we need you guys to kind of like take a look at these things and figure out how she's great and like why is she doing things so much differently than everybody else and that helped because when you get a bunch of ninth grade students who are saying yo this teacher's garbage and she doesn't know what she's doing yeah yeah y'all are whining be quiet you know just do what you're supposed to do but when parents are stepping in no we met her and um no she's not no, she's not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's not making it. So, 
you know, that parental involvement for me, right, in the same way it, it helped for you, it, it helped for me quite a bit. You know, the fact that my parents would show up and talk, um, even go so far as to giving the teachers their personal cell phone numbers. I think in middle school it was pagers or whatever, but given, <laughs> given that personal contact information to say, hey, well, my kid is doing something they're not supposed to do, you call me. Um, my dad, one time, I, it was seventh grade. I got home from school and my dad calls me to the room. He's sitting in the chair. He asked me a really, really specific question. So, so you know that, uh, the algebra homework you had? Yeah, yeah, pop. Uh, the, um, the word problems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the word problems on slope. Yeah, yeah, the sun. I'm getting real specific now. But yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. So, um, How'd you, how'd you do on that homework? I didn't do the homework now, Ooh. mind you. I don't, I don't believe in homework. I still don't believe in homework, but yeah, I didn't do it. And so he's like, you, uh, how, how'd you do with that? I just, great, great job, Pop. I, you know, man, I, Ooh. Whew, man, I crushed it. <laughs> crushed it. <laughs> still not noticing that this was oddly specific, but why? Because he had gone to my teacher and sat down and talked to her and got a printout of all of my grades, of all oh, the assignments wow. that I missed because he had that kind of relationship where he just walked into the classroom, got the information he needed, and it's like, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. So vice something that could have become now I was able to make up the work at, you know, with some penalty. Yeah. But vice something that could have been a zero sitting in the grade book because my parents aren't involved, so I can just skip out and do what I want. It became something that, you know, I'm able to try to make this up and fix it and correct issues because of that parental involvement. Yeah, and and just for for the listeners, I know you can kind of listen to this and, and hearing us talk about family while as we're talking about the you know, educational institution, but they're part of that institution like you you know you, it's not just uh educational institution is the the building the teachers the, the principals the deans and all that it is part of the it's part of the community for sure my mom when she would go to parent teacher conferences and this is going back as far as i can remember she would go in making sure the teachers understood that they were assisting her in teaching me that's their and she would wow. thank them for assisting her in teaching me. And this was very blatant. It wasn't yeah. a it wasn't an implied thing. She legit would say, first of all, thank you for helping me teach my son or dog, you know, dog, whatever. But thank you for helping me teach my child. Yeah. So that the teacher understood their role within this relationship. Like you're you're helping. I am primary. Teaching starts at home. And so I will teach and you will assist in that knowledge. Wow, that's everything right there. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's everything. I I know the frustration I've heard from a lot of teachers is is that they are you know they feel as though they're left on an island. Mm-hmm. Um, to you know, kids are dropped off and then they're picked up at the end of the day, and and people hope that you know magic happened in the school and, and right. they they learn some stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, what do you do about that? You know. Um, at the at the end of the day, when you really when you really just assess it, I was just born lucky, you know, yeah. to have the parents I had, or or um, even my intellectual level, any of that. It's just like I was just born lucky. So what do you like? How do you manage that? Because it's definitely some kids who their parents just 
don't care what they do between when school starts and school closes. Like you're just out of my hair. I'm essentially dropping you off at a daycare. Maybe you learn something, maybe you don't, but just go. Yeah. So how do you how do you account for that? There's a, I think there's a couple major ways. First, you know, the schools have to do a good job of communicating to parents that they do have a role in this. To those parents who don't think they do, um, like uh, when it comes to any institutional leadership, uh, I am a firm believer of uh, putting responsibility where it lies. Okay. Um, and so if you're the principal of a school, you're responsible for the entire educational process to include motivating, poorly motivated parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, you will, you will fail sometimes a lot of times but you have to make an earnest and and a good try and you escalate that up to the you know the the school boards they have a responsibility to to ensure the schools are equipped with everything they need to be equipped with and and have the programs and everything in place one of those programs that i think gets kind of addresses the problem more directly that you you ask about is a student advocacy program um what that does is tries to level the playing field for everybody hey, kid gets in trouble, just kind of like we have in the real world, hey, you get in trouble with law enforcement, you are you have a right to a lawyer. Oh, um, okay. Now you have a student advocacy program whose whole job is to advocate on behalf I've of never heard it. So you, you definitely hear about those things when you talk about college level, right? Yes. If you get into serious disciplinary issues on the college level, you have the, the that opportunity um, to present whatever it is to... to um, that disciplinary committee is making those decisions and you have the right to defend yourself and blah, blah, blah. I've never seen that on right secondary and lower level. That's interesting. And as some, some school districts have try, are trying to adopt that model. Okay. Uh, some, some have had it for a couple of years now, uh, varying levels of success because you know, everything's different. Some, you know, some between one place or another. Um, and then the devil's in the details always with something like this. Uh, but it's a model that I, I think, can work and especially if you expand the role of that advocacy beyond just disciplinary issues you make a you know academic issues as well hey have a person sit there with a teacher with a uh, mm. with the student and go hey okay why is this why is the student failing okay. you know turns to the student hey are you holding up your end of this you know end of this are you putting the right amount of effort uh, okay. teacher are you doing the same like uh similar to the way all tc does the drbs yes. when your grades are dropping below a certain point. So if you set you set a I guess a um and I'm trying to make sure I fully you set some type of standard for where your school starts to look at, all right, you've gotten below this GPA, we want to talk about why you're down there or if you've missed this many assignments, we want to talk about why you've missed those and they just kind of have a discussion on where you went wrong, how you can correct in the future, what you're doing now, blah blah blah, that type of thing. Yeah, and it but it, the other part of it is also includes the teacher. Because uh, part of the education that some people miss is that it is a two-way street, uh, especially when it comes to students. A lot of, you know, you look at a kid who fails a class, it is, uh, you know, I don't want to put percentages on effort, but there's a significant amount of effort that that student has to put in in order to pass that class. Right. Some portion of the effort, right? But there's a non-trivial amount of effort that a teacher owes to that student in order to ensure that that student has the information and that student is able to pass the class. So when you sit down at a table with that, you have that uh, that uh, theoretical advocate. He has the teacher on one side and the student on, on the other. And he or she goes, hey, student, 
did you meet your end of this bargain? Hey, teacher, did you meet your end of the bargain? And we can talk about that. That's good. I think it would. And this is just my opinion on it. I think it would create difficulties when um, we're trying to place, not that the teachers don't have a responsibility, but when we're trying to, the level of responsibility that you want a teacher to have vice the amount of time they have and the amount we pay them for having that level of responsibility, I don't think they meet at all. Absolutely not. Right. Um, you know, for, for a teacher to really, especially when you talk about how we mentioned funding, we talk about the amount of funding that that teacher has, not just that they're being paid, but the amount of funding they have from the school to um, involve the children more so in, in activities that are going to show them real world applications of something important like that. My algebra teacher put together a field trip every year. So my my seventh grade year was her first year teaching algebra at that school. Um, I think she had come over from Japan. Um, I want to say her husband was stationed out there. But anyway, so that was her first year teaching at this school. When we went in the slope, she came, um, she used an analogy about skiing, snowboarding, right, to teach us about slope. My eighth grade year, when she was teaching algebra to the next group, she came in dressed up in a ski outfit, like <laughs> the poles, the boards, everything, to teach about slope. And I want to say by the time I was in high school, she was taking the kids on a field trip every year to go snowboarding or skiing after they got done with their slope lesson. So it was a way that she was able to involve the kids and give them something to look forward to. Hey, let's talk about this. You know, let's let's talk about how this matters. Um Third grade, if you made honor roll, my third grade teacher took us all out to Chuck E. Cheese, right, and did right. things like that. So there were, there, there, every teacher is not, you know, required no. to do that, right? There, you got, you got families, you got your own personal life, things like that. I'm not saying that every teacher should do that, but what I'm saying is, if if we can address funding issues, if we can address um, class size issues, then we might have more opportunities for teachers to um, involve themselves in the responsibilities that I'm sure they want to be involved in because you don't just you don't teach for the money. So no. if you're getting into that, there's clearly this uh, this desire you have to educate. So it would allow them the opportunity to fulfill that desire in the way that they want to. Right. You're talking about not getting into it for the money, like across the country. Uh, it's like well, most recent data that I can pull up is between 2017-2018, uh, the average starting salary for a teacher was $39,000. So the Newport News shipyard is starting uh, inexperienced, so zero experience fresh out of high school, 18-year-olds at $17 an hour, which quick math, I think, comes out to somewhere around $35,000 a year. So yeah. zero, zero experience, um, 18 years old, you're making what <laughs> the average teacher makes. All right. And that's like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, you're, I mean, uh, a teacher for a given year is responsible for, you know, shaping the, you know, the minds of the, our future citizens. They should be paid uh, comparable to a Best Buy manager. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> you, like the, the, the fact that, you know, I could be a uh, team leader at a McDonald's uh, and make more money than a teacher. And I'm not saying that 
McDonald's is a bad job. I mean, it's hard or nothing like that, like that. But there's relative importance on the outcomes. Yeah, I, there. I mean, I hesitate to make comparisons like that, right? Because I'd be, I'd be heartbroken if McDonald's went out of well. I mean, maybe not McDonald's, but you know, fast food joints went out of bed. I think I'd be a little heartbroken. But I mean, I, I totally agree with everything yeah. you're saying that there's, um, the responsibility here, and I, I don't. I'm trying to find the right way to say it. I don't know about the the importance of one versus the other, but it's this idea that I'm entrusting my children to someone. Wouldn't you want them to be financially motivated to do a good job? Like especially when we talk about the way we are in society today. You can't it's very, very difficult to have um, what happened traditionally 50, 60 years ago, where you have one parent who works and one parent who's home every day and able to make sure the kid is on top of what they're supposed to be on top of and able to, to do those things. Typically today, it's very difficult for a family of four, right? I think average families having 2.5 kids or something like that. But so family of four to five to survive off of a single income is very difficult. So you're talking right. about both parents working um, more and more. You're seeing people work multiple jobs in order to support families. You're seeing more and more non-standard hours that people are having to work. So they might, you might not have both parents home at the same time when that kid is home after school trying to do work. And so essentially, um, putting the entire responsibility for my child's education because I can't participate in it onto this teacher and at the same time telling them, but we don't think we should pay you that much. And this is happening, as you said, for hundreds of students when you get to the high school level, right? You have you have hundreds of students. Even if you say your class size is twenty five, you know, and you have seven bells over the course of the day, you're still looking at, you know, what, 175 students. So that's yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. And 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 kind of adds something uh, extra dynamic that happens. I mean, uh, so we live in a capitalist society, right? Right. Money Obviously. is equated to value in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. When you are conversating, there's a there is a measurable dynamic here. When people, good meaning people, are conversating with somebody who makes half as much money as they make, there is a power dynamic that happens. If you have an educator sitting across the table uh, from a parent and that educator is making pennies on the dollar, what that parent is making, there is a negative effect that that parent, that educator is able to speak with authority to that parent. And and you lose out on uh, the benefits of expertise when the expert, the educator, can't be the expert in the room uh, when that power dynamic is kind of at play. And so... And, and also, you know, when that teacher is making only about 40 grand a year here in 2020, like you, uh, the attention of that teacher is probably going to be on, you know, he or she is probably going to be thinking about financial matters at home and other things that are going to take away from their ability to teach um, in ways that we don't want. Uh, we want those folks. We want to, to be able to filter out the people who want to be teachers to filter out good teachers from that lot as opposed to all the applicants because we need people uh be able, are able to become teachers i think uh savannah georgia recently uh and i don't know if that's still in effect now today but uh they waived um the educate some of their educational requirements for teachers for a period of time because they had so much such a hard time finding qualified candidates so here's what's interesting to me what i just um i was just looking up 
So this is from salary.com. I haven't, I'm gonna try to see how reputable this is in a second here, but just the, the stats they have right now. The average college professor salary in the United States is $154,000 as of June 28, 2020. The range um, for our most popular college professor positions um, typically falls between $73,000 and $235,000. So somewhere, <laughs> somewhere along the lines, it's, hey, you're teaching 12th grade, 40,000. Hey, you're teaching college freshmen, 73,000. That's the low end. That's the, that's the low end of college professor salaries. Oh, you're teaching people who are a year older and still immature and probably still take their laundry home to their parents on the weekends. <laughs> you get double the pay. And that's, that's crazy to me that there's this transition, such a huge transition between um, secondary school pay of their teachers and post-secondary school pay of, yeah. of their professors. It, it, I mean, this maybe there are reasons, but I can't see a reason why the gap should be that why should be that large of a gap. Yeah, and, and especially when the a lot of the qualifications are similar. Yeah, for a lot of professors, they do require the PhD and et cetera, uh, which does require you know a huge financial investment, but a lot of times those, uh, you know, you talk about freshman level classes and et cetera, they're taught by adjunct professors who don't meet all those records. So it, it it's shocking there with the fact that, I mean, again, College of Engineering, we're talking about professors who were, they didn't have, P, they were PhD candidates, right? right? Masters. Right. Maybe. Some <laughs> of them had masters, some of them went straight, you know, but we're talking about candidates. They haven't proven that they have that level of knowledge so i mean they what are they what is the reason that that they're saying that they should be paid more by that amount like that's yeah. crazy and a lot of i think a lot of it has to do with the the way the institutions are set up uh colleges are set up in a way that 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 marketplace for labor is is prestigious to be a college professor so to approach someone and say, hey, uh, I want to make you a college professor. I want to pay you $50,000 a year is something that a college never wants to say because that's a prestigious job. Why am I doing that? But a local school jurisdiction, when it comes to paying my 10th grade teacher, 10th grade science teacher, they have no issues with saying, hey, I'm going to pay this person $55,000 a year. You have a state school where you're probably paying $10,000 a semester. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, so that's a, that probably helps. That's a good segue to talk about like college level stuff. So I, and, and I'm a little bit uh, less versed on a lot of the stuff at second uh, post secondary education, um, at the collegiate level. Um, but one of the big problems that we're seeing is the cost of education, and the big part of that is kind of two major forces that are making education costs at the collegiate level go up as high as it is. Is uh, one you know loss of state funding. A lot, a lot of states are reducing how much money they're pouring into their uh, their public schools, public institutions, and then two, kind of runaway spending. Like, I, you know, every college, not every college, but the vast majority of colleges, in order to try to attract those freshman students, they're making huge cash investments in their infrastructure, in their housing, in their dining halls, and all these other things. So they're spending a ton of money in that. And so in order to keep up, they're raising their tuitions and because 
you know, we want to make higher education available to everybody. We have subsidized heavily, you know, education. So that whatever the price is, we pay it. What's interesting to look at, if you were to take um, the cost of education, the cost of a college education, some, I don't want to say 100, that's a long time ago, but some 50, 60 years ago, right? And you point at, put it at a point there and then take inflation as it's gone through the years, right? And just raise it according to inflation. Then you take the actual cost of education from 50, 60 years ago, do it year over year up to present. You'll notice that it only goes, it's only slightly above inflation until you get to the 1990s and we get federal student loans at that point. At once we have federal student loans, the cost of college is no longer slightly above inflation. It actually increases exponentially. You graph it year over year. You look at an exponential increase in the cost of education once the federal government got in the, in the student loan lending program, almost as if college was, well, you're good for it. You're good for it. I know you're good for it. So we're just going to go ahead and raise the cost because yeah. Uncle Sam's paying for it. Not only is Uncle Sam paying for it. <laughs> Uh, initially, Uncle Sam is also forbidding you to discharge that responsibility in bankruptcy. Exactly. So, uh, you will pay those student loans back. You got to give us our money. And I know we're going to get our money because no matter what you do, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Oh, you didn't pay your student loans off? You want to get a VA loan? Sorry. Don't qualify for any type of federal grant or loan programs if you didn't take care of your student loans or if you're not up to date on your federal student loan. So, yeah, but it's all sorts of craziness out yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we've had no meaningful policy change or otherwise to address the right, the cost, you know, this, the, the forever rising cost of tuition is, is just one of the big national failures we got going on, among other things. Yeah, we uh, gotta, we gotta find a way to keep our students alive to actually get to school first and then. Maybe we can address the cost of school. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> that's unfortunately where we are right now. Tension is properly fo focused <laughs> COVID right now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, kind of yeah, Corona Corona aside, um, <laughs> uh, the journey that I hope we took you on uh, through this particular podcast, you know, isn't, it doesn't end. I think we're going to circle back to education a later episode because uh, there's a lot of um, good points to deep dive into, especially at the college level. Uh, talking about uh, school institutions, the institutions inside the school, so between sports and uh, social clubs, all that good stuff. And then at the, uh, you know, at the K through 12 level, uh, there's a lot of stuff to flesh out, especially when we talk about um, uh either the effect of pre-K on school outcomes and uh, what does, uh, you know, hey, do we all condition all the kids for college or do we kind of acknowledge that there are other professions out there other than mm -hmm. um, professional poli-sci major, whatever it is. <laughs> um, so there's a lot more to, to go deep dive into. Um, that, so we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get, get around to that in a later day. Yeah, while we're, um, you know, certainly taking notes on on the, the things we're going to circle back around to and address, I want you guys to um, continue to keep your minds prepared for the next part of our journey into institutions is 
you know, Lawrence continues to to guide us and, and show us that perspective that he has on how institutions are going to be the next step to furthering our cause. We'll be back again to talk about the next institution. I hope we shifted your perspective a little bit. This is Ingenious Perspectives.